0: As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks after a a mob of Jews wanted to kill him and the rescues, the soldiers rescued him, uh, Paul asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists into the wilderness some time ago? And Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a citizen of no ordinary city, Please let me speak to the people. And we're going to look at what Paul had to say in uh, chapter 22. Let's, let's pray this morning. Lord, uh, thank you for the promise of heaven. We just sang about it. And uh, Lord, I pray that every person here knows their eternal destiny. That, uh, Lord, we are here for a brief moment of time. But our eternal destiny, if we know Jesus as our Savior is with you, thank you for the comfort that that can bring us. Help us to be reminded that uh, we are citizens of heaven and we're sojourners and pilgrims here. And so, Lord, in the time that you allow us to be here, Lord, help us to be faithful in serving you. Lord, I thank you for Caleb's testimony this morning. Thank you for the, the transforming power of God in his life. Thank you that um The salvation is by faith alone and grace alone through Christ alone. That's not about following rules. It's not about trying to be good, but it's about putting our faith in you. And thank you for the freedom in Christ that we have when we realize that. So open up our hearts and minds to your word today. And we pray that we will be changed after um, we hear your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, we are plowing through the book of Acts, and uh, we're actually uh, in the last quarter of the book. There's 28 chapters in the book of Acts, and we're going to uh, plow through the last uh, seven chapters here that really cover the last five years of Paul's life. And uh, most people believe that Paul died at the age of about 60, and that uh, Scripture doesn't record this, but church history, but he was, uh, he was beheaded, uh, by the Romans. And uh, that's how his life ended. So these last seven chapters, Paul's a prisoner. He's a prisoner of Rome. And we're going to see in the last seven chapters that he gives six defenses of his faith. And uh, the last number of chapters here in the book of Acts, I think you've got a little insert in your bulletin to kind of list those. And so this morning, we're going to pick it up where we left off last week. Remember, Paul closes his third missionary journey. He reaches Jerusalem. People are warning him, don't go there because bad things are going to happen. And that's exactly what happened, that uh, the Jews were not happy with Paul. They made some false accusations. There is a mob of Jews, and they are beating on Paul and about ready to kill him. And a Roman commander comes in and saves Paul's life. And they have a discussion. We read those verses uh, just a little while ago. And Paul says, I would like to speak to that angry mob. And so this morning, we're going to try to cover a lot of material here, uh, chapters 22 and 23, as we uh, look at our outline. And we're going to look at two of Paul's defenses. So what does he say to this angry crowd that just a few hours ago beat him and almost killed him? Well, Paul wants to calm the crowd, and Paul wants to make some connections with this crowd. So let's look at Paul's defense before the angry mob. This is starting in Acts chapter 22, verse 1. After receiving, we'll we'll pick it up in the last verse of uh, 21. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps, motioned to the crowd, and when they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen to my defense. And when they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. So Paul's trying to build a bridge to this angry mob. And the first thing he does is he speaks to them in their language. Paul was bilingual. He spoke Greek to the Romans. He spoke Aramaic, which is a dialect of Hebrew, to the Jewish people. And so, number one, he's speaking their language. Notice how he addresses them, brothers and fathers. He says, I'm one of you. I'm I'm Jewish. My heritage is Jewish. So, number one, he's speaking their language. He's identifying with them and saying, I'm a Jew, just like you. And uh, Paul also goes on to give his testimony, like we heard Caleb's this morning. And uh, he shares that testimony. And he says in verse 3, Uh, Or actually, verse, yes, verse 3, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. So Paul's like, I'm a very educated man. The most respected rabbi of the day was Gamaliel. And Paul says, I was trained under Gamaliel. What else does he do? He identifies with their cause. And we're not going to read this whole text, but um, these Jews are zealous for the Jewish faith and the Jewish belief. And Paul says, I understand that because that's where I was. I-, I was a chief persecutor of the church. I was the one who was throwing Christians in jail until I was on the road to Damascus. And Paul gives his testimony as salvation testimony in this passage. Now we're not going to read it because we already looked at it in Acts chapter nine. This testimony is given five times in the Bible. Paul recounts his testimony and how Christ changed his life. By the way, three weeks from today, on the twenty fourth, um, and uh, we'll begin to promote this a little little further. But uh, you're going to hear uh, another testimony, a remarkable testimony. I, a fellow by the name of Dave Dish. I found Dave is, is actually local here in Manchester. And, uh, Dave gives a testimony. He's given it all over the country called On the Road to Damascus. And just to give you a little, um, little insight into Dave's testimony, Dave uh, worked for the Department of Defense. He was over in, in Germany and, uh, he was in a horrific car accident. The car that hit him was going 100 miles an hour. Dave should have never lived. And uh, it's a remarkable story. I spent about an hour with Dave last week, so he's going to give a brief little ten-minute uh, testimony in our service, and then after our fellowship time, he'll give you the whole uh, the whole story of how God uh, rescued him and dramatically changed his life. Well, this is what Paul's doing. Paul's giving his his personal testimony. That crowd is listening to him very intently until verse twenty-one. And when Paul says in verse 21, and then God sent me as a missionary to the Gentiles, that was a flashpoint. And that angry Jewish mob, uh, was done listening to Paul. And, uh, they, they believed that they were God's chosen people. And it was offensive to them to say that Gentiles could also, uh, come into the faith without converting to Judaism. And so in verse 21, uh, the the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Verse 22, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. So this crowd is back into a frenzy. Uh, They've heard enough of Paul and they want to kill him. And so, uh, we look at our next section here in uh, chapter 22, and it's Paul demands his rights as a Roman citizen. And so, here's this Roman commander. He, he really doesn't know what to do with Paul. And so, here's what he, he's thinking. This crowd wants to kill him, so he kind of rescues him. The commander orders Paul back to the barracks, verse 24, he directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting like this. Why are these people so mad at Paul? So let's flog Paul and um, use our interrogation tactics and we'll get to the truth, is what the commander is thinking. There's is a fascinating portion of Scripture here. Verse 25, as they stretch him out to flog him. So here's what we need to understand about flogging. Uh, Jewish flogging and Roman flogging are different. Uh, The Jews had a regulation of how many times you could beat somebody in flogging. And they used rods to flog somebody. And they said the maximum hits that a person can take is 39. In fact, Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 says, Five times I received 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Paul went through Jewish flogging five times. Roman flogging is a whole different story. Roman flogging had no limits of how many times you could beat someone. They used something with a wooden handle, leather strips, and embedded into those leather strips was bone and metal. And they stretched you out tied your hands, and they beat you and beat you and beat you. Often you ended up with um, injuries for the rest of your life, and sometimes you were killed. By the way, that's what Jesus went through before he went to the cross. If you remember the, the movie, it was 20 years ago, hard to believe it was 20 years ago, Mel Gibson, The Passion of the Christ, Received an R rating because of the flogging scene. I don't know if you've watched that movie. I watched it a couple times. I have a very hard time watching the flogging. It is brutal. And that's what Paul's facing. And so they they stretch out Paul. They're getting ready to flog Paul. And now Paul pulls his trump card. Look at what he says in verse 25. Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? I, I got a question for you. You're about to, to flog me. Uh, by the way, um, I'm a Roman citizen. And that changed the whole dynamic right there. Roman citizens had all sorts of privileges. One of them is that you could not um, put chains on anybody. You could not flog anybody. You couldn't do anything until they had, what, a fair a trial. And so all of a sudden, I don't know why Paul waited so long. I would have pulled that card a lot earlier. I mean, they're just ready to beat him. And they're like, time out. I'm a Roman citizen. And so what happens? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? This man's a Roman citizen. we got a problem here. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? I am, he answered, then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. This is how the Romans' uh, government earned a lot of money. You could buy citizenship. Paul says, no, I was born a Roman citizen. I'm a natural-born Roman citizen. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. Verse 29, the commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. He's already broken the Roman law. When he when he put Paul in chains without a trial, he's he's already in trouble. And so he puts a total stop to this. And uh, Paul demands his rights as a Roman citizen. So what does what does the commander do? Verse 30, Paul the commander wanting to find out exactly why Paul was accused by the Jews. Why are they so mad at him? So the next day he released them and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. And then he brought Paul in and had him stand before them. So... What's the commander do? He says, this is a Jewish matter. Paul's a Jew. The Jews are angry with him. We're going to take this to the Jewish courts. And so the next day, he calls an assembly of the Sanhedrin Council. This is like the Supreme Court of the day. Uh, The Sanhedrin Council was composed of 70 members, and they had a high priest, and uh, it was the highest religious court in the land, and so the commander says, let's take this to the Sanhedrin, and uh, we're going to let them handle this matter. And so chapter 23, and we're going to look at it a little more carefully than 22, uh, chapter 23 uh, records Paul's second defense, and now he's before the Sanhedrin council the next day. And it doesn't get off to a very good start. Let's let's read it. Verse uh, one. Uh, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, "My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all conscience to this day." At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Now, what is going on there? Paul begins to address the Sanhedrin. The high priest is mad, and he has someone basically slap or punch Paul in the mouth. Well, there, there was a standard greeting, a customary protocol before the Sanhedrin, and you were to address them, rulers of Israel and elders of the people. There was a formal address out of respect. And Paul comes and doesn't use that. He, he basically says, my brothers, hey buddies, I'm here. And then he says, I fulfilled my duty in all good conscience. He's basically saying, I'm innocent. And the high priest by the name of Ananias who was not a very nice man, according to to, uh, history, has someone strike Paul in the mouth. And Paul doesn't respond very well. Notice how he responds. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself also violate the law by commanding that I be struck, which was was true. That was a violation of, of law. Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? Um, Paul did not realize that the person that he was talking to was the high priest of the Sanhedrin council. And some say, why didn't Paul realize that? Well, the scripture says Paul uh, probably had some eyesight problems and maybe he he didn't have a good visual of him. This was a hastily called assembly of the uh, Sanhedrin. Maybe the high priest wasn't wearing his normal garb. We don't know, but for Whatever reason, he didn't realize that was the high priest. Those standing near, how dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. And so uh, Paul basically apologizes. says, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. So it got off to a very rocky start. And, uh, and now Paul goes into his defense before the Sanhedrin. By the way, Paul used to be a member of the Sanhedrin 30 years earlier. Uh, Sanhedrin made up a lot of uh, two groups uh, that were parts of Jewish sects, the Pharisees, who were the ultra-conservative legalists. You talk about rules. Oh, man. 613 do's and don'ts that they added to the law. You couldn't, you couldn't do anything. There were so many rules and regulations that they came up with. Uh now, the Sadducees, they were a little more um, liberal group, and um, they did not believe in the afterlife. They did not believe in miracles. Here's the key thing. the Sadducees did not believe in the doctrine of resurrection. Uh, they didn't They didn't believe in that. And that plays a key into Paul's defense here as we see a dispute at the Sanhedrin Council. Let's read about it. In, uh, verse six. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin. My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. So he's saying, I'm a Pharisee and I believe in the resurrection and that's why I'm in trouble here because I've been preaching about the resurrection. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. So Paul's taking the focus off of him. These 70 members of the Sanhedrin don't agree theologically, and what happens? They break out into a dispute says, the Sadducees say that there's no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe in all these things. Verse 9, there was a great uproar. Some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man. They said, what if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and brought him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So that's how the the defense before the Sanhedrin council concluded. They got into a big argument, and then they're mad at Paul, and the commander says, Time out. Let's take Paul back to his barracks, because this is going nowhere. Well, the last part of our outline before we get into our our life lessons then is Paul's deliverance from a murderous plot. Uh, these people hated Paul, uh, just like they hated Jesus, and they wanted to they want they would, would wanted to kill Paul. They they would stop at nothing to get rid of Paul. And so let's look at uh, how this. Uh, All played out, verse 12, the next morning some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. So there's a group of uh, Jews that came together and said, we're basically going on a hunger strike. We're not going to eat or we're not going to drink until Paul is dead. It says more than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and says, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commanders to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about this case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. So they go to the Sanhedrin council and say, here's our plan to kill Paul. And the council apparently is going along with this. Notice how... God shows up. And it's it's, uh, it's remarkable. Verse 16 starts with that three-letter word, but. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul, ah, Paul's nephew, and we don't know how, but somehow Paul's nephew finds out about this plot. And what does he do? He doesn't sit on that information, but he goes in and he tells Paul, you better be careful because there's a plot to take your life and this is what's going to happen. And so the story progresses that Paul calls one of the centurions and says, take my nephew, this young man, to the commander. He has something to tell him. He takes him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul the prisoner sent for me and asked for me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. Verse 19, the commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and says, what is it you want to tell me? He said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man, Paul's nephew, with this warning, don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, my NIV translation says 200 spearmen, to go to Syria at 9 o'clock tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he would be taken to safety to Governor Felix. So what's this commander do? He, at nighttime, takes Paul now to Caesarea before Governor Felix, and he's going to send him about 60 miles away. Notice how many Roman soldiers he has go with Paul. If I do my math right, 470. Uh, they have 470 soldiers, some spearmen, some uh, that are riding on horses, and at nighttime, they're taking Paul to Caesarea to stand trial before Governor Felix, and he sends him a, a letter. We're not going to read the, the letter. This is how the, the text ends. Uh, Paul now ends up in Caesarea, and he's before Governor Felix, and his life is spared. Well, that's a quick flyby of uh, Acts 22 and 23 and two of Paul's uh, defenses at the, um, near the end of his last few years of his life. Um, but this morning, we want to conclude by thinking about well, what's this mean for us? And so what are some truths that can um, help us this morning from Acts 22 and 23? And I have three of them I'd like to, to share with you. So here's, here's the, the first one. Uh, that we can draw from Paul's story, is that God is sovereign over the days of our lives. God is in control of the days of our life. Psalm 139, verse 16 says, All the days ordained for me, God, were written in your book before one of them came to be. What's the psalmist saying there? God, you not only know my birth date, but you also know my ending date my expiration date, all the days that you have ordained for me to live were written in your book before one of them came to be. Isn't it interesting how many times Paul potentially lost his his life? Um, He's been with us through the study of the the book of Acts, uh, Acts 14 in Lystra. They stoned him, left him for dead. In Ephesus, in Acts 19, there was a riot, and there was thousands of people uh, chanting about great as Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours, and they wanted them to bring Paul in, and they probably would have killed Paul if he would have showed up, and, and thankfully Paul didn't show up. Uh, here in uh, Jerusalem, Acts 21, last week, we saw that Paul was arrested and the Jews beat on him and they would have killed him if the Roman commander wouldn't have intervened. Here at Acts 22, he came very close to being flogged. As we'll see a little later on in Acts 27, when he's on a ship on the way to Rome, there's a shipwreck and he almost loses his life. It's amazing how many times Paul came this close to dying, but God protected him. And so we can take great comfort in the fact that um, every day of your life is marked out already, and God knows the beginning, God knows the ending. And that's important to know. Um, I get lots of uh, prayer requests that come our way from friends that are in difficult situations and right now we have uh, a i have two friends uh, one one here in southeastern michigan and one in ohio and um they're both very close to leaving this world and we got an update on our friend late last night by a text and then again this morning and uh, thinking that time is very very short um We can take comfort in the fact that God knows every day of our life. And what did Paul say in Acts chapter 13? And he's talking about King David. This, now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep or he died. He's talking about King David. When David did everything that God laid out for him to do, David died. And so Uh, This morning, if your heart is beating in your chest, that means God's not done with you yet. He has a plan and a purpose for your life. And when that plan and purpose is completed, then God says, I'm going to call that person home. Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time to live, time to be born, and there's a time to die. And so Psalm 90 gives us a great application, uh, application of this. Psalm 90 verse 12, it's the oldest Psalm, and Moses writes, uh, Psalm 90 in the midst of the wilderness wanderings, he says, our days may come to 70 years, or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow. Moses, that sounds a little pessimistic to me. The best of our life in this planet is trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If you're over 40 this morning, you're going to say, Where did the time go? You get to that point in your life, like, how did that happen so fast? And so Moses gives us the application here from Psalm chapter 90, verse 12. He says, Life is short. And then he gives a prayer. Teach us to value our days or number our days so we can live a life of wisdom. Someone paraphrased that to say, help us to count our days so we can make our days count. My last birthday card that I got from my older brother and sister-in-law, who are both uh, retiring from Cedarville University this year, but I, I've saved it and I have it on my desk. I look at it about every day. The front of the card says, make the rest of your life the best of your life. It'll seize, seize the moment. Seize the opportunity. To make a difference in people's life. So, God's sovereign over the days of our lives, and we can take comfort to that. Uh, secondly, God speaks to us in our time of need. God speaks to us in our time of need. Isn't interesting in this storyline here? Here's, here's Paul, and he's been beaten by this Jewish mob. He's uh, then stood before um, the, the mob and given a speech, and they say, kill him. He's now before the Sanhedrin, and that ends up in a frenzy. And uh, Paul might be a little bit discouraged. He was human. They were out to kill him. And what happens in verse 11? It says, after he's back in his barracks, the following night, the Lord, I love this phrase, the Lord stood near Paul. Guess who showed up? God did. God shows up to Paul, and I don't know if it was a, a personal Visible uh, experience or just uh, these words that he hear, heard from God. But what's he say? Take courage. Don't be afraid, Paul. As you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Paul always wanted to take the gospel to Rome. And God says, don't be discouraged, Paul. Don't be afraid. And guess what? You will go to Rome someday. You'll, you'll testify to for me in in Rome. What can we learn from that? We learn that God speaks to us in our time of need. And what does he say? Take courage. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. This happens all through the scripture that God shows up. We know many of these stories, the stories of the three Hebrew young men that were taken a thousand miles by the King Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire, and they were training them in Babylonian culture and they had a statue to Nebuchadnezzar 90 feet tall and they wanted everybody to bow down to him and three young Hebrew teenagers said, we're not going to do that. We're not going to bow down to your idol. They face the fiery furnace and uh, the death penalty and they throw him in the fiery furnace. King Nebuchadnezzar comes back, looks in that fiery furnace and says, I thought there were just three of them in there but I see four people. And God miraculously showed up with them in that fiery furnace, and they take those boys out, and there wasn't even the tinge of the smell of smoke on their clothing. And God showed up. The disciples in Matthew chapter 6, they're been told by Jesus to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, so they're obeying what Jesus told them to do. And they're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and a horrible storm shows up. And they're afraid for their lives. And all of a sudden, they are looking out at nighttime, and they see a form of somebody coming toward them. They think it's a ghost. And then the person says, don't be afraid, it's I. It's Jesus. Don't be discouraged. Don't be afraid. And Jesus comes in and shows up at their time of need. And the same can happen in our life. In our time of need, God shows up. Sometimes it's through a verse of Scripture. Sometimes and oftentimes today it's through God's people that show up at a time of need and help and encourage and minister because we are what the body of Christ. were to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. And God shows up in our time of need. Well, lastly this morning, the third life lesson is this. That we must choose action over apathy. We must choose action over apathy. So here's this plot to kill Paul. Forty men saying we're not eating or drinking until Paul is dead. And a nephew of Paul's overhears this. I don't know how old the nephew was. Paul was probably in his mid-50s at this point in his life. Maybe this nephew's 25 years old, young man. And now this young man has a choice to make. He overhears this plot, and the young man could have said, I really don't want to get involved in this. And if I identify with Paul, they may uh, somebody might hear about this, and they might come after me, and my life might be in danger. And so I think I'm going to this one out. But that's not what the nephew did. What's he do? He goes straight to Paul, and then he has a centurion come, and he takes this young man, and he goes straight to the commander, and he tells him his story. And because this young man spoke up from a human standpoint, he saved his uncle's life because he chose what? Action over apathy. Stories story is told of a person that was doing a survey door-to-door, knocking on doors and doing a survey. And uh, the question in the survey was, what do you think is the two greatest problems in America today? And the person really didn't feel like answering. And so they just said, I don't know, and I don't care, and kind of closed the door. And the guy's writing down, says, that's exactly right. Ignorance and apathy, two greatest problems in our world today. Uh, this story tells us that we need to choose action over apathy. It's the story of Esther, isn't it? If you're familiar with that story in the Old Testament. And, uh, where God placed this Jewish queen in in a key position and what were they ready to do? They were ready to exterminate all the Jews. And Mordecai, I believe it was Mordecai, who came to Esther and says, you've got to speak up to the king and say something. You've got to, because God's put you in a place for such a time as this. And Esther risked her life and spoke up to the king, and the Jewish race was, was saved. There are many times in our life that we need to choose action over Apathy. We need, to, we need to get involved. You know, it's much, much easier in life just to care about yourself. Like, hey, I, you know, I'm just trying to make ends meet. I've got my own family. I've got my own issues. And um, I'm just going to kind of care for myself. But that's not what God's called us to do, is it? It's much more difficult to be involved It's much more difficult not only to care about your issues, but to reach out to other people and to be a listening ear and to pray with people and to be involved in their pain and their problems. Much easier just to say, I'm just going to do my own thing. But God's not called us to do that. God's called us, what, to bear one another's burdens. God's called us to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to greet one another. And so we must choose, like Paul's nephew did, Action over apathy. And when we do, we make a difference in people's lives. And when we do, we can stand and perhaps write with the Apostle Paul as he wrote his last epistle, probably from a prison cell in Rome. He says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. And now there's a reward waiting for me, a crown of righteousness, and I'm sure Paul heard those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Why? Because he chose action over apathy. And so I don't know what situation you're, you're facing. And a lot of times, and this is true a lot in, in, in men's lives, we tend to be passive. God wants us to be active. God wants us to, to lead and God wants us to, to make choices and choose action over apathy Maybe maybe this applies to sharing the gospel with somebody that, that God's put on your heart or being involved in somebody's life, and certainly Paul's nephew set that example. Well, when we look at uh, the text next week, we'll see now Paul's in Caesarea, and he's facing another trial before uh, Governor Felix, and Paul gives another defense of the faith. Let's pray this morning, shall we, as we conclude Lord, thank you that we can take comfort this morning in knowing that you have detailed and laid out for us every day of our life. You know the day that we were born. You know the length of our life. And you know our final date. Lord, in the meantime, help us to make wise use of of the gift of time, the precious gift of time that you've given us. Lord, thank you that you show up in our time of need. And Lord, whether that's through a, a scripture verse, whether that's through someone that stops by and and uh, shares something with us, a financial gift, uh, offers to pray with us, Lord, help us to be sensitive to the hurts of others. And then, Lord, I pray that you would help us to choose not apathy, but help us to choose action. Lord, help us to say, Lord, what would you have me to do? And, Lord, help us to have the courage to do it. Give us the grace to do that today. We'll pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.